Hello and welcome back to the Indie, a podcast from the Santa Barbara Independent giving you what's happening in Santa Barbara. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie, and I'm here this week with Leslie Dynaberg, contributing writer for The Independent, discussing the upcoming home and garden issue this week. So Leslie, you were a large proponent of this week's issue. When did you start doing work on the home and garden features, and what was it like going and seeing these homes and shops and landscaping projects? Well, it was great, actually. This was one of my first groups of interviews that I'd done personally. After more than a year or so, all of that was wonderful. Last year was the first year I worked on the home and garden section. So I kind of knew that it was coming up. So Matt Kettman, my editor, and I were exchanging ideas and, you know, potential story ideas, I would say for the last three or four months, but I really only blasted it out in about two weeks. <laughs> and it was wonderful. I mean, weird at first, definitely having done so much stuff by Zoom and by telephone over the past, you know, 13, 14 months to walk into a store or walk into somebody's office or their home. It's a different dynamic, (laughs) like all of us kind of learning how to be out in the world again. You actually met with architect Jeff Shelton at his personal office as well. So how does he approach the history of Santa Barbara architecture with a new twist? It's really interesting, actually, because he's portrayed as kind of this rebellious architect by a lot of people because his style is specific to him. And, and it you know, it's definitely a different riff on what we see in the traditional Spanish red tile roof kind of architecture that we see in Santa Barbara. But he really has kind of mastered the codes and all the rules and the process in Santa Barbara. I mean, he actually talks about that as being almost part of his architectural artistic palette. So it's quite interesting, um, his own take on his work versus kind of the public take on his work. It's not quite the same. He loves Santa Barbara and loves to beautify it. And I think that's really kind of his goal. So you also did a feature on Joe Ambrose and his kingdom of plants. What was it like visiting his nursery and creative landscape? It's really kind of hidden in Carpinteria. So it's like this mysterious place where I literally got to the end of his street and had to call him to figure out which direction to go. Um, And then you enter and it's just this amazing greenhouse of all kinds of treasures. So I've done a lot of horticultural stories over the years and a lot of greenhouses kind of specialize in one thing or another or a couple things. And he has, of course, all kinds of orchids because that's where he got his start. But there's just all these crazy plants um, that I've never seen anywhere before. And he has a really interesting artistic eye. And it was right before Mother's Day when I went in there. So he had a lot of really cool potted arrangements that looked almost like they came from outer space or something. I mean, really unusual stuff. So that was really fun. And he's super enthusiastic. And, you know, it's definitely an education going in there to spend time with him. So even with the orchids, you know, he's basically educating people on how to keep those orchids alive and maybe, you know, plant them elsewhere and that kind of thing. So it's really more exotic plant than cut flowers. So now your last article was a bit of a collection of different horticultural and botanical spaces that are open to the public. Could you tell me a bit about some of the ones that you mentioned? 
Well, it really had to do with during the pandemic, walking was one of my main recreation and just like social activities too. The Chumash Garden, for example, it's just right on the campus at City College. And honestly, we just stumbled across it. And so, you know, just doing a walk around City College and it's like, oh, what's this? And then going and doing a little bit of research on what it is. You know, some of the other gardens like the Rose Garden and Lotus Land and the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden, I had already spent much time at over the years, but but that one definitely was kind of something to stumble on. Casa del Herrero is a place that I've done several photo shoots at over the years and spent a lot of time at. And it's really, I think, even though it's a part of the National Historic Landmarks, it's a lesser visited area um, in Santa Barbara, and it really is quite a historical treasure and the gardens are really special. So a lot of the inspiration for that was really just my own kind of exploration. Um, And then kind of the idea that you know, rather than just doing all your research online, it's really fun to be able to go and actually see some of these things. You also spoke with Valerie Rice, who runs the Eat, Drink, Garden blog, and she had some pretty interesting thoughts about getting excited cooking again, and it has to do with gardening. What did she say about that? She's just a, another person who's really a wealth of information, and I I had a lot of questions for her because I had been following her Eat, Drink, Garden blog for years. And honestly, I was kind of surprised that this is her first book because I feel like she's been part of that part of the Santa Barbara scene for a long, long time. Um, But one of my favorite things that she was talking about, which it's funny, you don't think about this that much for gardening, but is if you grow things that you really like to eat, you'll be more excited about going out and, you know, taking care of them and and thinking of ways to use them in your uh, meals and that sort of thing, Um, which seems super obvious, but at the same time, like, you know, for myself and my own fooling around with stuff, that's never been part of it. It's always been, well, what will work in this, you know, kind of light or uh, shade or whatever. So that was pretty interesting. I was cracking up because, you know, she has this huge garden, but she talked about how she actually goes to the farmer's market every single weekend and ends up with, you know, tons and tons of stuff, even though she has tons and tons of stuff because everything just looks so good. Well, Santa Barbara has a very botanical culture and a very local culture. So it's great to see all these different people sharing their work, sharing their landscape, sharing their artistry, and as well as opening stores that create new opportunities for sustainability. So I actually wanted to ask you what one of your favorite parts in writing about all of these different people and places was. The whole work as a whole was very inspiring. The antique story was really fun in part because Ann Luther, the person that was sort of my tour guide, is somebody I've known and I've worked with her as a marketer over the years. And, you know, I've seen her antique collections in her own house, but she had never walked me through any of her stores. And she was really just a a wealth of knowledge about how to look at antiques. But also a big part of our conversation was about kind of the environmental friendliness of shopping for antiques. You know, not only are you not creating new things, but it's also, you know, these are better made products. They're from a time when things were just better made and and they're made to last. So you're getting high quality items and they're mostly less expensive as well. Um, So, you know, that was kind of a light bulb for me. But, 
you know, the story on, on Jeff Shelton was also definitely a highlight. He's somebody that I've known um, a little over the years and definitely been a big fan of his work. So, you know, it was kind of like going into the creator's workshop <laughs> was a treat for sure. Well, thank you so much, Leslie Dunnenberg, for speaking with me about your contributing pieces to the home and garden issue this week. Absolutely. Now over to Hugh Ranson, member of the Santa Barbara Audubon Society, discussing his second article in a birding series about bird migration from the south and the rehabilitation of our local wetlands. So Hugh, what is so important about this great migration push and what have Santa Barbara dwellers seen or can expect to see in the skies? Well, probably most of the migration has already taken place. There's still a few stragglers moving moving in the south, you know, heading north from South America, Central America, Mexico, and many migrants will follow the coastline along on their migration. So we're we're in a prime position to see see birds coming through. We've got uh, one of the great things about Santa Barbara is that we've got just such a variety of habitats here that can attract birds not only to spend the winter to stay and breed but also to to visit during during migration to kind of stock up on food on their way we've got obviously shoreline we've got some wetland areas left for for shorebirds to feast on invertebrates in the mud we've got lots of ornamental plantings which for things like hummingbirds and orioles for the nectar from from flowers from ornamental plants and of course we've got lots of natural native habitats creekside full of insects you know the chaparral there's still still migration going on but as i said it's uh, uh, petering out a little bit now and things are arriving on their on their breeding grounds and getting down to the breeding business So in your second article entitled Rewilding coming out this week, you talk about rehabilitating lands to breed certain wildlife species and birds specifically. So what's going on in Santa Barbara right now to create these native ecosystems? There's something really exciting happening in in West Goleta. Devereaux Slough, which is just to the west of UCSB area, is a place of national importance as a stop-off spot for migratory birds, whether they're ducks or shorebirds. Um, the slough or the estuary used to extend much, much further to the north. A lot of it had been filled in in, uh, I think it was, I believe it was the 60s. The north end of the slough was filled in with you know thousands of tons of dirt to create the Ocean Meadows Golf Course. And that kind of loss of really important habitat was really keenly felt by the birds and the, and the animals and the insects that, that used to inhabit that spot. You know, grass, say for a golf course, is one of the, the least productive habitats that you can, you can find anywhere. Only, only plastic grass is probably less important for, for animals. And so the golf course was, was not doing brilliantly in 2008, I believe it was, the, the Trust for, for Public Land uh, with a lot of other eight local agencies was able to, to purchase the golf course. And they've been doing a fantastic job of rewilding the area to return it to its former glory. So the Devereaux Slough will be extended back into its former area where it used to run. A lot of public input went into creating this new reserve, which is now known as North Campus Open Space. A few years ago, they started uh, removing in October 2017. They started removing the dirt that had filled in to make the golf course, and 350,000 cubic yards of soil was was excavated. New habitat, or really old habitat, was was recreated: salt marsh, 
mud, sand flats, riparian, vernal pools, etc. So it's a it's really a, a great success story. I think the thing that got me really excited about this this whole rewilding idea was uh, was when I read a book about a year ago, Wilding by Isabella Tree, which takes place in my native Britain. And it's the story of a couple who inherited a large estate. It was a 3,500 acre estate, which was given over to farmland. They tried to farm it and tried to turn a profit, but they were losing money every year. The, the soil had was just worn out. It was just a losing proposition for them. They decided to try and re- return this land to to nature with the philosophy that they would restore the land just by really letting go. One of the exciting things they did was they realized that by introducing herbivores that would have been native to Britain long ago before before the land had been tamed by humans, they could bring vegetation back and, and then the rest of the flora and fauna would would follow. And that's indeed what happened. They brought in, first of all, they brought in fallow deer in 2002. Then they brought in uh, cattle, Old English longhorn cattle, and then certain kind of pigs called the Tamworth pigs, which would replicate what uh, what wild boars would do. And then eventually they brought in a native species of, of horse, the Exmoor colt. And these herbivores would keep the ground clear. They would basically keep creating new habitat by by grazing and stopping, you know, forests from just taking over. And it's just been an incredible success. For example, uh, and the UK is is kind of a sad uh, situation over there because 97% of wildflowers meadows have been lost in the last 50 years or so. Intensive farming has just really decimated most of wildlife in, in Great Britain. Insects have declined 70 to 80%. And this kind of rewilding, which I think could be a blueprint for how to get the world back into some kind of balance, has had just this incredibly uh, positive effect. I'm hoping the same thing will be happening at the North Campus Open Space with the idea that you just let go and nature can can take over. We can we can restore things to maybe how they how they once were. Now, wetlands are an endangered habitat, a habitat that is very important for migratory birds and many other species, but why are you so invested in these rewilding projects? As I say in the article, there's just so much bad news that we read every day about you know, whether it's uh, climate change, mm-hmm. habitat loss, species going extinct or close to extinct. So we've got to hold on to these good pieces of news or these brave ideas whenever we can. The idea that we can actually bring back things from the brink by letting nature have her way and allowing the creatures to come back and live in these sensitive areas. I think we've lost, just in Southern California alone, about 95% of the wetland areas along the coast. You know, in such an arid landscape that we live in, that's a huge loss. And the wetlands have a, a great deal of biodiversity, which can sustain all kinds of life for, for migratory creatures and just for, for resident creatures, whether they're invertebrates or vertebrates. I know at North Campus Open Space, they've recorded all kinds of bat species coming back. And just in recent months, actually, they've been recording species that had not been recorded on the reserve before, such as spotted skunks and gray foxes. So there's hope. There's hope that we can reverse some of the damage that we've been causing. Well, thank you so much, Uranson, for speaking with me about your second installment of the Rewilding series. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
Thank you once again to Leslie Dinaberg for speaking with me about her behind the cover story and features as a part of the Home and Garden issue coming out this week. Head to www.independent.com to read up on landscaping, gardening, and rewilding locally. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of The Indie. Tune in next week for another episode. Thank you.